If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at faith tonight and looking at the Word and what that means. Um, Over the course of the last few weeks, we've been looking at the way and the fact that Christianity was not designed ever to be um, something that we attach to what we're doing, but it's something that controls everything that we do. Uh, we've, we've looked at truths that, that impact that in our lives, truths that uh, affect us. And as we've gone through some of those truths, we, we have, I have looked at several things. And tonight we're going to look at faith. The de- definitive text on faith, of course, is Hebrews chapter 11, that, that uh, text that we've all heard before. And I just want to start out with verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In your King James and the ESV, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now if you just take that text at face value, that definition doesn't make any sense at all. Okay, so if faith is substance, which means faith is something that I can touch, I can feel, it's it's of weight, of things that I hope for. It's the physical things that are substantial, but of the things that I hope happen. Faith is the evidence. Think of every Perry Mason TV show you've seen, every CSI episode. Evidence is things you can look at, you can taste, you can see, right? Evidence has got to be something that can be presented in a courtroom. The evidence of what? Of things not seen. No district attorney is ever going to walk in a courtroom and say, I've got evidence here, but you can't see it. The writer of Hebrews understands that we're not going to get what's being said, and so he then goes through the entire chapter of Hebrews chapter 11 to give us examples to help us put a handle on it. Because he understands that that sentence, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, is confusing. And so he gives us example after example after example. Starts out with, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And so here we have, and the Bible doesn't Give up, tell us the story of God telling Cain and Abel what kind of sacrifices to give. But clearly, one of them knew that blood had to be shed, and one of them gave their very best. They worked really hard and gave their very best, but it wasn't what God had commanded. And so one was accepted, and one wasn't. The amount of sincerity that a person has in their gift is immaterial. God chooses how we approach Him. We don't get to choose how we approach Him. It is very common for people who don't have a lot of experience with church to, when they find out that I'm a preacher to say, let me ask you a question. Like this is a new question that nobody had ever asked before. What does God do with someone who, let's say, lives in India and they're a Buddhist and they are a really sincere Buddhist and every day they go to temple and they give sacrifices to whatever God that they, they, they are, are following, but they really are sincere and, and their faith has a huge impact on them. What does God do with that? 
What do you do with the Muslim? I knew in Ankara Muslims who lived a lifestyle that Baptists could not live. They went to church five times every day. They got up every morning at five o'clock or sunrise, whenever uh, sunrise was, uh, and, and would, would pray, go to the, temp, uh, the mosque and pray. And then in mid-morning, they would leave their job, close the shop, go to church and pray. At lunchtime, they would go back and pray. Mid-afternoon, go back and pray. And at sunset, go back and pray every day. Once a month, for Ramadan, they fasted. From sunup to sundown, they wouldn't eat or drink anything. If I were to have a prayer meeting at this church at 5 o'clock in the morning, you know how many people would be here? Me. Guaranteed. That's just, but he did that every day. And for that month, he didn't eat anything during the day. Now, they eat at night, but what they have is they have a guy that goes around the neighborhood at like 3 o'clock in the morning and has this huge drum, and he beats that drum to wake everybody up so they can get up and eat and drink something before sunrise. And then at the end of the month, you're supposed to pay him every house. He goes around to the house and knocks on the door and says, I'm the guy that played the drums, and you're supposed to pay him to thank him for waking you up. Since I wasn't Muslim... I found the man very annoying. Every morning at 3 o'clock, somebody walking down the hall of my apartment going boom, boom, boom on this drum. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. And then at the end of the month, I'm supposed to pay him? I, yes, I did. Uh, the, the bare minimum. Um, but they're sincere. They follow sincere beliefs. One, but so why is this included in faith? What has faith got to do with? I know what I'm supposed to do and I do it. I proffer to you that what we read in Hebrews is that's exactly what faith is. Faith is not believing something really, 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 really strong. There's lots of people who really believe things that are wrong. Faith is obeying what God told us to do, whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not. The examples that are given throughout this text are examples of people who heard what God said. Abram is told to get up and leave. He doesn't understand what God's doing. He doesn't even necessarily like what God's doing. When God told him that he was going to have a kid, remember they had to name the boy Giggles because they laughed. They didn't believe it. And yet, they acted in belief. He got up and moved. He didn't understand how God was going to do it. I think Abraham went to his dying grave, longing to see what would come, Jesus said. And yet, he still obeyed. And so what faith is, is me reading what God tells me to do, whether I understand it, whether I like it, whether it scares me, I do what God tells me to do. And I trust that God's going to back himself up. So Cain did what God told him to do. Abel did not. I'm sorry, Abel did what God told him to do. Cain did not. They were both sincere. Your sincerity has nothing to do with it. It's what you're putting your faith in that's important. The most important thing about faith is the object of faith. We've 
joked that every time that I drive over a bridge at night, I'm putting faith in the engineers that designed that bridge, the people who maintain that bridge. I can't see what's in front of me. I can only see five or six feet in front of me where, as far as my headlights go, and yet I'm going 60 miles an hour over that bridge. I'm literally putting my life in multiple different people's hands. There have been examples in history of people driving off of bridges. In Coleman County, there was a, a road that 40 years ago led somewhere, but now that they flooded that valley and what is now Smith Lake, the road literally just goes into the lake. And every year you'd read in the paper about somebody that was going down that road at 50 miles an hour. There's multiple signs, road ends ahead. Road ahead goes into the lake, don't keep going. They weren't paying attention. They're fooling around on their phone or they're fooling around on the radio and they end up 10 feet out into that water. How do I know that's not gonna happen on the bridge? I'm putting faith in lots of things. And the important thing isn't me putting my faith in it. The important thing is, is the people that I put my faith in that the engineer did a good job, that the people who are maintaining that bridge do a good job. I proffer to you that the primary issue of faith is what you're putting faith in, and I'm telling you on the basis of God's Word and on the basis of my life, I can tell you from experience that you can put your faith in God. He's the only thing that is faithful. Everybody else will let you down. For good or for bad, as far as it applies to your life, God's going to do what he said he would do. Which is why when we read the Bible say, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, that will you reap, can be really scary. Those can be some really scary words. Based on what you sow, that can also be an unbelievable promise. When you're serving your king and nobody sees it, and nobody appreciates it, and nobody cares, and you feel like you're wasting your time, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. I, have, uh, uh, I, I enjoy playing with plants, um, and I have uh, re recently repotted some things. I found there's a bush that I want to grow by uh, in front of our house that is a beautiful uh, type of it's called a burning bush, and it's red year-round, and then the fall it turns a real dark red. Um, it's a beautiful plant, and they are expensive. Uh, like a one-gallon burning bush is like $180. They are really expensive. So I found somebody that had seeds, and so I could buy 30 seeds for like 75 cents. So I got a bunch of seeds, and so I took all the pots in the office and, and set them up to, to plant. And in, in the mixing of putting dirt in, in the pot and then taking a cup and putting it into all the other pots, um, I had a pot that was like a quarter of the way full of dirt. So one of the other things that I do here at the church uh, is very frequently on Monday, uh, I will boil a dozen eggs uh, and put them in the fridge, and then over the course of the week, I'll eat those eggs, and I will go buy a watermelon and have the watermelon here, and I'll cut a piece off, and so boiled eggs and watermelon is often my, my lunch. And so if I'm sitting in my office uh, eating a watermelon, what are you going to do with the seeds? And so I had that pot sitting there uh, in my office, and so that just became a convenient place for me as I was eating watermelons to, to spit the seeds as I, I was working on something or doing whatever. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, we were in staff meeting, and somebody said, 
what is that? And I looked at that pot, and there are the, all these plants that are coming out of the top of the pot. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. I've never planted anything there. And as they grew, I started recognizing the plants. Whatever you sow, that's what's going to come up. So if anybody needs some watermelon plants, I got a bunch of them. The text goes on, though. The text goes on and gives us examples of Abraham. The text gives us examples of Jacob. The text gives us examples. And then uh, he, he kind of but, the writer of Hebrews kind of buttons it up and says, What more shall I say? For time would fail to, for me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. These are the stories that we love to read in the Old Testament. We love to read Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? As the king came and said, you will bow down. I've fired it up 10 times hotter than it was. And they said, so that you will know that there's a God, we will not bow. And he threw them in the fiery pit, and the king says, look, if there's four men. Didn't we just throw three in? And the only thing that burned off was their, their ropes, and the other one is like the Son of God. We love the stories when people get freed. But was God any less faithful when Isaiah was sawn in two in a log? Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego told the king, if God chooses to save us, he can. But if he chooses not to, you know we will not bow. Oftentimes, the story on this side of the Jordan doesn't end the way we want it to. This is not our home. We're not living for everything to work out here. Because the text goes on. Women receive their dead, which is obviously referring to uh, the woman that, that uh, Elisha raised from the dead. Uh, some were tortured. Wait, that's not exciting. Refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mockings and floggings, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. So it wasn't that they had done something. They had said something wrong. They hadn't claimed something correctly. They were doing it all right. And yet in this life, it didn't work out the way they wanted to. They wandered in deserts and mountains. They were poor. They, they walked in, in dens and caves. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. What this text is telling us is, is that even if your life doesn't work out the way that you want it to here, even when bad things happen on this earth, sickness happens. We live in a fallen world. 
We have had people that have walked this altar and asked the elders to lay hands and pray on them, and sometimes, gloriously, God heals. And sometimes, in three months, we do their funeral. God is the one who chooses that. But what the text is saying is that in both of those cases, God was still faithful. And he goes on to say, because the chapter and verse breaks that are in your Bible weren't there when the writer wrote this. So the next thought that's going on is tying into that. Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. What he's saying is those people who it worked out for and those people that in this life it didn't work out for, today all of them are witnesses to the fact that God is faithful. We have 6,000 years of witnesses who can say, yes, I was tortured. I wandered around in dens of the earth and caves of the earth. It didn't work out for me. But you know what? If I could go back, I wouldn't change a thing because God was faithful. They're witnesses. In that section, what, what the writer is saying is not that they're witnesses of us, but they're witnesses to God. Thank God they're not witnesses to us. I've seen so many times these silly little paintings of, of everybody looking down in this verse. We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. They're not witnesses to us. If they're watching me all the time, they're going to see what a failure I am. They're going to see me lose my temper and act like an idiot. They're going to see me acting the fool when I should be representing Jesus well. They're going to see me fail. They're not witnesses to me. They're not witnesses to you because we aren't always faithful. They're witnesses to God who is always faithful. So there should be no doubt in your mind. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who say, no matter what happens in this life, it's worth it all. And if you want your life, give it away. And so faith, real faith, isn't me conjuring up in my own heart that I believe something really, really strong. It isn't me pumping something up in my mind or in my heart. Faith is recognizing who we have faith in and resting in Him. And rec recognizing that whether He chooses to heal me or not, He's enough. Whether he chooses to provide this money or not, he's enough. Whether he chooses to make this relationship work out or not, he's sufficient. He's enough. So now that we know what faith is, I think that what we read in Ephesians chapter 6 makes more sense. When we're told, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, not good circumstances, likable circumstances, all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the darts of the evil one. In all circumstances, we're not, and this is a command. We're not commanded to take up the shield of faith when things happen the way we like. We're not commanded to take up the shield of faith when COVID disappears. I, I, if I've heard this sentence once, I've heard it 50 times in the last week. I'll be glad when this COVID mess is over. You know what? We're commanded to take up the shield of faith now. 
in all circumstances we take up the shield of faith. Now, if you think about the shield of faith, it's important to understand the shield that Paul would be talking about. Remember, Paul is writing this text from jail. He's got a Roman soldier standing right there so he can look at the equipment that he has on. And the shield that Paul was referring to would have probably been made out of layered wood. They would have taken a particular type of wood and they would have had a mold and they would have wet that wood and maybe steamed it and then put it over that mold and then clamped it down and then put another layer over it and clamped it down and put another layer over it and clamped it down so that that shield would be concave on the front. It would have had a boss in the middle of it, a round metal piece that if a sword hit it, it would have glanced to either side. Inside of that sword, and then once they had the layers of wood together, they would have covered it in leather so that before the Roman soldier went into battle, he soaked that shield in water so that that leather would swell so that any flaming darts that hit the sword, they wouldn't just bounce off. They wouldn't just be on the other side of the, the, the soldier it, it would actually extinguish them because that wet leather that absorbs so much water would make it go out. So when that flaming dart hit the, 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 the boss of the shield, it would have gone, Tsh! I love that because the enemy's slinging arrows at us every day. Every time you open Facebook, every time you turn on the news, there's arrows that are coming right at you. It wants to make you either feeling like there's nothing we can do, I'm overcome, or angry. Why, I'm not going to take this. The enemy doesn't care which side you go for, just so long as you're not effective in voicing the gospel. If you're over here and you're scared to death and you're huddled in your house rocking back and forth with uh, a mask on, and you know what you're not doing? You're not showing love to anybody. You're afraid. And if you're walking around like you're in, in a battle every time you go to the store, I ain't wearing a mask. Nobody's going to hear anything that you have to say about Jesus, not a word. The enemy doesn't care which side you fall on just so that you're not effective. If we have our faith in the one that we're supposed to and those flaming darts hit us, they're extinguished. The other thing about the sword is, I mean, about the shield that's important is how the Roman soldiers used it in battle. The shield was called a scutum in Latin. And they allowed packed formations to overlap their shield to provide an effective barrier against projectiles. If you look at the picture that I have there, it's, it is a relief that shows the way they would interlock those shields so that as they marched into battle, nothing could get through. Now that's important because that tells me that my shield is not only important for me, it's important for him. It's important for him and her and her because it was the shields together that made the Roman army undefeatable because nothing could penetrate them. That phalanx could march through hordes of barbarians and no matter what they flung at them, it couldn't break through. In fact, when they interlocked the shield, the Latin word for that is um, testudo, which is Latin for a tortoise. It was like a tortoise shell. Nothing could get through. 
my experience in life has been this. It seems like, almost without exception, that I and my spiritual walk will be down. It just feels like I'm not having any victories. It feels like everything's going coming against me. I'm frustrated. God brings somebody into my life who's on a high point. And at first, it's annoying. I've shared this story about a time in my life when I was here and I was really frustrated. A lot of things had gone on. I don't know. I don't remember what all it was. But I just remember I was having a really bad day. Um, and I, you know, I was in that mode where you're kind of walking around grumbling to yourself. And lo and behold, uh, one of our missionaries that we support that lives in the area was at the door, knocking on the door. And I'm like, oh, I don't have time. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want, I can't, but hey, brother, how's it going? Because you know, I'm a Baptist, so I'm, yeah, Lord's good. Come on in. And we talked for a little while. He said, well, I want to take you for lunch, to lunch. And I'm like, brother, I, 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 I don't have time to go to lunch. Uh, but I already have stuff here to make lunch, so if you want to, we can just go in the gathering area and eat. And he, he said, well, what do you got? And I said, well, I've got some tomatoes and i got some bologna. And he said, that's redneck caviar. I'm all about it. And so we went in the kitchen, and we cut up some, sliced up some tomatoes and made us some tomato and bologna sandwiches, and we sat out there, and he started sharing some of the things that God was doing in his life. And his fire caught me on fire. As he was talking about the way God had been faithful in his life, all of a sudden the things that I had been so upset about seemed really silly. And so he left here, and his shield had extinguished the swords that were coming at me. And he didn't even know it. There'll be times when we're in here singing, and the music comes on, and it's not my jam. That's not the music that I would listen to in the car. So I'm like, huh. Okay, we're going to get through this song. And then I look over, and one of my brothers or sisters in Christ has their arms out, and they've got tears running down their faces. They praise their king. And their faith is contagious. All of a sudden, I'm singing along with them, and I'm saying, God is faithful. We need each other. One of the beautiful parts of the shields is that they interlocked with each other. These shields aren't designed to be used by one guy alone. If a Roman soldier fought alone, they had a completely different type of shield that they used. The purpose of these shields, the designs of these shields, are them to be used in concert. We need each other's faith. We need each other. Because there will be times in your life when so much has come against you, you're just, I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, I know God is faithful, but I can't take any more. Have you ever, am I the only one who's ever had that feeling that I just can't take another thing? And then God is faithful to bring somebody in my life who's probably had it a lot worse than me. Who, they're up here. And I've had people tell me that there were times in my life when I'm up here and I've just been being around and somebody's like, hey man, what's going on? And I, you know, I'm one of those crazy people that answers the question, well, let me tell you what God's doing. God's done some amazing stuff. And then later they tell me, dude, I was having a rough time and you, God just used you in my life and I just wanted to thank you. Let's be there for each other. Let's let our shields block those fiery darts that come for our brother.
Because that is how, and I love the way Paul put it. I love that he says extinguish, not deflect. We're not just conquerors, we're more than conquerors. Because God loves to use the bad things that come into our lives for his good, for his glory. Doesn't he? Can't you think of examples in your life when something that you thought you, I, there's no way I can even get through this, some sickness, some situation. And on the other side of it, you're a better person for it and God's been glorified. So the darts aren't just deflected, they're extinguished. And it says all. There is nothing that's gonna come into your life that's too big for God. No matter what it is, how it comes, one of the expressions we like to, to say that is completely false in our Christianese is God's not going to let anything come into your life that you can't handle. That is terribly wrong. In fact, I would go so far to say that the Bible makes it pretty clear that God on purpose brings things into your life that you can't handle. Because it teaches you to be dependent on Him. Because let me tell you something, there isn't anything that's going to come into your life that He can't handle. And so He wants us to get in the habit of crying out to Him. Father God, Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I pray that we would live by faith. That we would look to You. That we would recognize that this life Without you, it's pitiable. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are faithful to you. Lord, I pray that you would use this church to reach this community in your name. Amen.